Friday, May 19th, 1944. Dearest Kitty, I felt rotten yesterday. Vomiting, headache, stomachache, and anything else you can imagine. I'm feeling better today. I'm famished, but I think I'll skip the brown beans we're having for dinner. Everything's going fine between Peter and me. The poor boy has an even greater need for tenderness than I do. He still blushes every evening when he gets his goodnight kiss, and then begs for another one. Am I merely a better substitute for Borsha? I don't mind. He's so happy just knowing somebody loves him. After my laborious conquest, I've distanced myself a little from the situation, but you mustn't think my love has cooled. Peter's a sweetheart, but I've slammed the door to my inner self. If he ever wants to force the lock again, he'll have to use a harder crowbar. Yours and Frank. Saturday, May twentieth, nineteen forty-four. Dearest Kitty, last night when I came down from the attic, I noticed the moment I entered the room that the lovely vase of carnations had fallen over. Mother was down on her hands and knees, mopping up the water, and Margaret was fishing my papers off the floor. What happened? I asked with anxious foreboding. And before they could reply, I assessed damage from across the room. My entire genealogy file, my notebooks, my books, everything was afloat. I nearly cried, and I was so upset I started speaking German. I can't remember a word, but according to Margaret, I babbled something about. Incalculable loss, terrible, awful, irreplaceable, and much more. Father burst out laughing, and Mother and Margaret joined in. But I felt like crying because all my work and elaborate notes were lost. I took a closer look, and luckily, the incalculable loss wasn't as bad as I'd expected. Up in the attic, I carefully peeled apart the sheets of paper that were stuck together, and then hung them on the clothesline to dry. It was such a funny sight. Even I had to laugh. Maria de Medici, alongside Charles V, William of Orange, and Marie Antoinette. It's Hassan Shande, Mr. Van Dam joked. After entrusting my papers to Peter's care, I went back downstairs. Which books are ruined? I asked Margaret, who was going through them. Algebra, Margaret said. But as luck would have it, my algebra book wasn't entirely ruined. I wish it had fallen right in the vase. I've never loathed any book as much as that one. Inside the front cover are the names of at least twenty girls who had it before I did. It's old, yellowed, full of scribbles, crossed-out words and revisions. The next time I'm in a wicked mood, I'm going to tear the darn thing to pieces. Yours and Frank. Monday, May twenty-second, nineteen forty-four. Dearest Kitty, on May twentieth. Father lost his bet and had to give five jars of yogurt to Mrs. Van Dam. The invasion still hasn't begun. I can safely say that all of Amsterdam, all of Holland, in fact the entire western coast of Europe, all the way down to Spain, are talking about the invasion day and night, debating, making bets, and hoping. The suspense is rising to fever pitch. By no means has everyone we think of as good Dutch people kept their faith in the English. Not everyone thinks the English bluff is a masterful strategical move. Oh no! People want deeds great, heroic deeds. No one can see farther than the end of their nose. No one gives a thought to the fact that the British are fighting for their own country and their own people. 
Everyone thinks it's England's duty to save Holland as quickly as possible. What obligations do the English have toward us? What have the Dutch done to deserve the generous help they so clearly expect? Oh no, the Dutch are very much mistaken. The English, despite their bluff, are certainly no more to blame for the war than all the other countries, large and small, that are now occupied by the Germans. The British are not about to offer the excuses. True, they were sleeping during the years Germany was rearming itself, but all the other countries, especially those bordering on Germany, were asleep too. England and the rest of the world have discovered that burying your head in the sand doesn't work, and now each of them, especially England, is having to pay a heavy price for its ostrich policy. No country sacrifices its men without reason, and certainly not in the interests of another. And England is no exception. The invasion, liberation, and freedom will come some day. Yet England, not the occupied territories, will choose the moment. To our great sorrow and dismay, we've heard that many people have changed their attitude toward us Jews. We've been told that anti-Semitism has cropped up in circles where once it would have been unthinkable. This fact has affected us all very, very deeply. The reason for the hatred is understandable, maybe even human, but that doesn't make it right. According to the Christians, the Jews are blabbing their secret to the Germans, denouncing their helpers, and causing them to suffer the dreadful fate and punishments that have already been meted out to so many. All of this is true, but as with everything, they should look at the matter from both sides. Would Christians act any differently if they were in our place? Could anyone, regardless of whether they're Jews or Christians, remain silent in the face of German pressure? Everyone knows it's practically impossible. So why do they ask the impossible of the Jews? It's being said in underground circles that the German Jews who immigrated to Holland before the war and have now been sent to Poland shouldn't be allowed to return here. They were granted the right to asylum in Holland, but once Hitler is gone, they should go back to Germany. When you hear that, you begin to wonder why we are fighting this long and difficult war. We are always being told that we are fighting for freedom, truth, and justice. The war isn't even over. And already there's dissension, and Jews are regarded as lesser beings. Oh, it's sad, very sad that the old adage has been confirmed for the upteenth time. What one Christian does is his own responsibility. What one Jew does reflects on all Jews. To be honest, I can't understand how the Dutch, a nation of good, honest, upright people, can sit in judgment on us the way they do, on us the most oppressed. Unfortunate and pitiable people in all the world. I have only one hope: that this anti-Semitism is just a passing thing; that the Dutch will show their true colors; that they'll never waver from what they know in their hearts to be just, for this is unjust. And if they ever carry out this terrible threat, the meager handful of Jews still left in Holland will have to go. We too will have to shoulder our bundles and move on. Away from this beautiful country, which once so kindly took us in, and now turns its back on us. I love Holland. Once I hoped it would become a fatherland to me, since I had lost my own, and I hope so still. Yours and Frank. Thursday, May twenty fifth, nineteen forty four. Dearest Kitty, Babs engaged. 
The news isn't much of a surprise, though none of us are particularly pleased. Bertus may be a nice, steady, athletic young man, but Bab doesn't love him, and to me that's enough reason to advise her against marrying him. Bab's trying to get ahead in the world, and Bertus is pulling her back. He's a labourer without any interests or any desire to make something of himself, and I don't think that will make Bab happy. I can understand Bab's wanting to put an end to her indecision. Four weeks ago, she decided to write him off, but then she felt even worse. So she wrote him a letter, and now she's engaged. There are several factors involved in this engagement. First, Bab's sick father, who likes Bertus very much. Second, she is the oldest of the Voskajol girls, and her mother teases her about being an old maid. Third, she's just turned twenty-four, and that matters a great deal to Bab. Mother said it would have been better if Bab had simply had an affair with Bertus. I don't know. I feel sorry for Bab and can understand her loneliness. In any case, they can get married only after the war, since Bertus is in hiding. Or at any rate, has gone underground. Besides, they don't have a penny to their name and nothing in the way of a hope chest. What a sorry prospect for Bab, for whom we all wish the best. I only hope Bertus improves under her influence, or that Bab finds another man, one who knows how to appreciate her. Yours and Frank. The same day. There's something happening every day. This morning, Mister Van Hoven was arrested. He was hiding two Jews in his house. It's a heavy blow for us, not only because those poor Jews are once again balancing on the edge of an abyss, but also because it's terrible for Mister Van Hoven. The world's been turned upside down. The most decent people are being sent to concentration camps, prisons, and lonely cells, while the lowest of the low rule over young and old, rich and poor. One gets caught for black marketeering, another for hiding Jews or other unfortunate souls. Unless you're a Nazi, you don't know what's going to happen to you from one day to the next. Mister Van Hoven is a great loss to us too. Bab can't possibly lug such huge amounts of potatoes all the way here, nor should she have to. So our only choice is to eat fewer of them. I'll tell you what we have in mind, but it's certainly not going to make life here any more agreeable. Mother says we'll skip breakfast, eat hot cereal and bread for lunch, and fried potatoes for dinner, and if possible, vegetables or lettuce once or twice a week. That's all there is. We're going to be hungry, but nothing's worse than being caught. Yours and Frank. Friday, May twenty-sixth, nineteen forty-four. My dearest Kitty. At long, long last, I can sit quietly at my table before the crack in the window frame and write you everything, everything I want to say. I feel more miserable than I have in months. Even after the break-in, I didn't feel so utterly broken inside and out. On the one hand, there's the news about Mister Van Hoven, the Jewish question, the invasion, the awful food, the tension, the miserable atmosphere, my disappointment in Peter. On the other hand. There's Bab's engagement, the Pentecost reception, the flowers, Mr. Kugler's birthday, cakes and stories about cabarets, movies and concerts. That gap, that enormous gap, is always there. One day we're laughing at the comical side of life in hiding, and the next day we're frightened, and the fear, tension, and despair can be read on our faces. Meep and Mr. Kugler bear the greatest burden for us. 
and for all those in hiding, meet in everything she does. And Mr. Kugler, through his enormous responsibility for the eight of us, which is sometimes so overwhelming that he can hardly speak from the pent-up tension and strain, Mr. Clayman and Bab also take very good care of us. But they are able to put the annex out of their minds, even if it's only for a few hours or a few days. They have their own worries. Mr. Clayman with his health and Bab with her engagement, which isn't looking very promising at the moment. But they also have their outings, their visits with friends, their everyday lives as ordinary people, so that the tension is sometimes relieved, if only for a short while. While ours never is, never has been. Not once in the two years we've been here. How much longer will this increasingly oppressive, unbearable weight press down on us? The drains are clogged again. We can't run the water, or if we do, only a trickle. We can't flush the toilet, so we have to use a toilet brush. And we've been putting our dirty water into a big earthenware jar. We can manage for today, but what will happen if the plumber can't fix it on his own? The sanitation department can't come until Tuesday. Meep sent us a raisin bread with "Happy Pentecost" written on top. It's almost as if she were mocking us, since our moods and cares are far from happy. We've all become more frightened since the Van Hoven business. Once again, you hear "shh" from all sides, and we're doing everything more quietly. The police force the door there. They could just as easily do that here too. What will we do if we're ever? No, I mustn't write that down. But the question won't let itself be pushed to the back of my mind today. On the contrary, all the fear I've ever felt is looming before me in all its horror. I had to go downstairs alone at eight this evening to use the bathroom. There was no one down there since they were all listening to the radio. I wanted to be brave, but it was hard. I always feel safer upstairs than in that huge silent house when I'm alone with those mysterious muffled sounds from upstairs and the honking of horns in the street. I have to hurry and remind myself where I am to keep from getting the shivers. Meep has been acting much nicer toward us since her talk with father, but I haven't told you about that yet. Meep came up one afternoon, all flushed, and asked Father straight out if we thought they too were infected with the current anti-Semitism. Father was stunned and quickly talked her out of the idea. But some of Meep's suspicion has lingered on. They're doing more errands for us now and showing more of an interest in our troubles. Though we certainly shouldn't bother them with our woes. Oh, they're such good, noble people. I've asked myself again and again whether it wouldn't have been better if we hadn't gone into hiding, if we were dead now and didn't have to go through this misery, especially so that the others could be spared the burden. But we all shrink from this thought. We still love life. We haven't yet forgotten the voice of nature, and we keep hoping, hoping for everything. Let something happen soon, even an air raid. Nothing can be more crushing than this anxiety. Let the end come, however cruel. At least then we'll know whether we are to be the victors or the vanquished. Wednesday, May thirty-first, nineteen forty-four. Dearest Kitty, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday it was too hot to hold my fountain pen, which is why I couldn't write to you. Friday the drains were clogged. Saturday they were fixed. Mrs. Clayman came for a visit in the afternoon and told us a lot about Jopy. 
She and Jacques van Marsen are in the same hockey club. Sunday, Beb dropped by to make sure there hadn't been a break-in and stayed for breakfast. Monday, Mr. Gee served as the annex watchman, and Tuesday we were finally allowed to open the windows. We've seldom had a Pentecost weekend that was so beautiful and warm, or maybe hot is the better word. Hot weather is horrible in the annex. To give you an idea of the numerous complaints, I'll briefly describe these sweltering days. Saturday, wonderful! What fantastic weather! We all sat in the morning. If only it weren't quite so hot. We sat in the afternoon when the windows had to be shut. Sunday, the heat's unbearable. The butter's melting. There's not a cool spot anywhere in the house. The bread's drying out. The milk's going sour. The windows can't be opened. We poor outcasts are suffocating while everyone else is enjoying their Pentecost. Monday, my feet hurt. I've nothing cool to wear. I can't do the dishes in this heat. Grumbling from early in the morning to late at night. It was awful. I can't stand the heat. I'm glad the winds come up today, but that the sun's still shining. Yours and Frank. Friday, June second, nineteen forty-four. Dear Kitty. If you are going to the attic, take an umbrella with you, preferably a large one. This is to protect you from household showers. There's a Dutch proverb: "High and dry, safe and sound." But it obviously doesn't apply to wartime and to people in hiding. Moshi's gotten into the habit of relieving herself on some newspapers or between the cracks in the floorboards, so we have good reason to fear the splatters and, even worse, the stench. The new mortar in the warehouse has the same problem. Anyone who's ever had a cat that's not housebroken can imagine the smells, other than pepper and thyme that permeate this house. I also have a brand new prescription for gunfire jitters. When the shooting gets loud, proceed to the nearest wooden staircase, run up and down a few times, making sure to stumble at least once. What with the scratches and the noise of running and falling, you won't even be able to hear the shooting, much less worry about it. Yours truly has put this magic formula to use with great success. Yours and Frank. Monday, June fifth, nineteen forty-four. Dearest Kitty, new problems in the annex. A quarrel between Dusso and the Franks over the division of butter. Capitulation on the part of Dusso. Close friendship between the latter and Mrs. Van Dan. Flirtations, kisses, and friendly little smiles. Dusso is beginning to long for female companionship. The Van Dans don't see why we should bake a spice cake for Mr. Kugler's birthday when we can't have one ourselves. All very petty. Mood upstairs. Bad. Mrs. Van D has a cold. Dusso caught with Brewer's yeast tablets while we've got none. The Fifth Army has taken Rome. The city neither destroyed nor bombed. Great propaganda for Hitler. Very few potatoes and vegetables. One loaf of bread was mouldy. Shaming Kotier can't stand pepper. She sleeps in a cat box and does her business in the wood shavings. Impossible to keep her. Bad weather. Continuous bombing of Pas-de-Calais and the west coast of France. No one buying dollars. Gold even less interesting. The bottom of our black money box is in sight. What are we going to live on next month? Yours and Frank. Tuesday, June sixth, nineteen forty-four. My dearest Kitty, this is D-Day. The BBC announced at twelve. This is the day. The invasion has begun. 
This morning at 8, the British reported heavy bombing of Calais, Boulogne, Le Havre, and Cherbourg, as well as part of Calais, further as a precautionary measure for those in the occupied territories. Everyone living within a zone of 20 miles from the coast was warned to prepare for bombardments. Where possible, the British will drop pamphlets an hour ahead of time. According to the German news, British paratroopers have landed on the coast of France. British landing craft are engaged in combat with German naval units, according to the BBC. Conclusion reached by the annex while breakfasting at night. This is a trial landing like the one two years ago in Dieppe. BBC broadcasts in German, Dutch, French and other languages at 10. The invasion has begun. So this is the real invasion. BBC broadcasts in German at 11. Speech by Supreme Commander General Dwight Eisenhower. BBC broadcasts in English. This is zero day. General Eisenhower said to the French people, stiff fighting will come now. But after this, the victory. The year 1944 is the year of complete victory. Good luck. BBC broadcasts in English at 1. 11,000 planes are shuttling back and forth or standing by to land troops and bomb behind enemy lines. 4,000 landing craft and small boats are continually arriving in the area between Zerbok and Le Havre. English and American troops are already engaged in heavy combat. Speeches by Gerbrandy, the Prime Minister of Belgium, King Haken of Norway, the Gaul of France, the King of England, and last but not least, Churchill. A huge commotion in the annex. Is this really the beginning of the long-awaited liberation? The liberation we've all talked so much about, which still seems too good, too much of a fairy tale ever to come true. Will this year, 1944, bring us victory? We don't know yet. But where there's hope, there's life. It fills us with fresh courage and makes us strong again. We'll need to be brave to endure the many fears and hardships and the suffering yet to come. It's now a matter of remaining calm and steadfast, of gritting our teeth and keeping a stiff upper lip. France, Russia, Italy and even Germany can cry out in agony, but we don't yet have that right. Oh, Kitty. The best part about the invasion is that I have the feeling that friends are on the way. Those terrible Germans have oppressed and threatened us for so long that the thought of friends and salvation means everything to us. Now it's not just the Jews, but Holland and all of occupied Europe. Maybe, Margaret says, I can even go back to school in October or September. P.S. I'll keep you informed of the latest news. This morning and last night, Dummies made of straw and rubber were dropped from the air behind German lines, and they exploded the minute they hit the ground. Many paratroopers, their faces blackened so they couldn't be seen in the dark, landed as well. The French coast was bombarded with 5,500 tons of bombs during the night, and then at 6 in the morning, the first landing craft came ashore. Today, there were 20,000 airplanes in action. The German coastal batteries were destroyed even before the landing. A small bridgehead has already been formed. Everything's going well, despite the bad weather. The army and the people are one will and one hope. Friday, June 9th, 1944. Dearest Kitty, great news of the invasion. The Allies have taken Bayer, a village on the coast of France, and are now fighting for Cannes. 
They're clearly intending to cut off the peninsula where Sherborne is located. Every evening, the war correspondents report on the difficulties, the courage, and the fighting spirit of the army. To get their stories, they pull off the most amazing feats. A few of the wounded who are already back in England also spoke on the radio. Despite the miserable weather, the planes are flying diligently back and forth. We heard over the BBC that Churchill wanted to land along with the troops on D-Day, but Eisenhower and the other generals managed to talk him out of it. Just imagine, so much courage for such an old man. He must be at least seventy. The excitement here has died down somewhat. Still, we're all hoping that the war will finally be over by the end of the year. It's about time. Mrs. Van Dan's constant griping is unbearable. Now that she can no longer drive us crazy with the invasion, she moans and groans all day about the bad weather. If only we could plunk her down in the loft in the bucket of cold water. Everyone in the annex except Mr. Van Den and Peter has read the Hungarian Rhapsody trilogy, a biography of the composer, piano virtuoso, and child prodigy Franz Liszt. It's very interesting, though in my opinion, there's a bit too much emphasis on women. Liszt was not only the greatest and most famous pianist of his time; he was also the biggest womanizer. Even at the age of seventy, he had an affair with Countess Marie de Gault, Princess Caroline, saying Wittgenstein, the dancer Lola Montez, the pianist Agnes Kingworth, the pianist Sophie Mentor, the Circassian Princess Olga Janina, Baroness Olga Meyendorf, actress Lila Watsonay, etc. And there's no end to it. Those parts of the book dealing with music and the other arts are much more interesting. Some of the people mentioned are Schumann, Clara Wieck, Hector Berlioz, Johannes Brahms, Beethoven, Joachim, Richard Wagner, Hans von Bülow, Anton Rubinstein, Frederick Chopin, Victor Hugo, Honoré de Balzac, Hiller, Hummel, Czerny, Rossini, Cherubini, Paganini. Mendelssohn, etc. Liszt appears to have been a decent man, very generous and modest, though exceptionally vain. He helped others, put art above all else, was extremely fond of cognac and women, couldn't bear the sight of tears, was a gentleman, couldn't refuse anyone a favor, wasn't interested in money, and cared about religious freedom and the world. Yours and Frank. Laborious, laborious, additive. Requiring considerable time and effort. Adage. Adage. Now, a proverb or short statement expressing a general truth. Pentecost. Pentecost. Now, in the Jewish religion, a holy day that comes fifty days after Passover 